in, in some ways, like we're in the financial services industry, which isn't always the fastest moving one. But when you look at what's happening outside of, of that, that's where the expectations are set for what the public wants to do. Like being having to go like into a branch to open a, a bank account, for example, is not something that a millennial or Gen Z or Gen Alpha would really want to do. They, they want to do things on. Welcome to Humanizing Software where we explore our ever-evolving relationship with technology and its impact on our professional and personal lives. Hear incredible stories and gain valuable insights from global industry leaders as we discuss their relationship with software and how it's developed over the course of their career. As technology continues to evolve and brings us closer together, it should enable people to do what they do best while we uncover what they do best with the help of technology. And now your host, Andrew Tall. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And welcome to this week's edition of Humanizing Software from Tailwind Business Ventures. We invite you to please join the conversation. Visit our website at tailwindsw.com, but follow us, look at us on our YouTube channel at any of the previous episodes that we've aired. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, all of the various social media channels. And listen in to some of the past episodes where we've had industry leaders such as Harsha Balur, Angela Moran, uh, Lisa McCarty, and many others share their viewpoint on this ever-emerging and ever-changing topic. We're certainly glad today to have an individual join that I've had the opportunity of getting to know over the course of the last several years and that we've been able to actually partner with on a business front. It is my pleasure to have the opportunity to have everybody be introduced to Kai Grenholm, who is the CEO of Woodbridge Software. Kai is a 25-year veteran software executive that is extremely skilled in not only leading teams, but honing strategy and making sure that that strategy is brought to bear from an execution perspective. He had co-invented Network Access Control, was able to do a venture-backed company that was eventually sold to HP, has specific expertise in not only security with financial services, but enterprise data, as well as mobile and data uh, and web applications as well. He has been leading the team at Woodbridge Software, which Tailwind has been partnered with for a number of years here, but he's been running it for the last eight years and helping it grow with their emphasis on financial services. He has a degree in physics from my alma mater at the University of Texas here in Austin, and also has an MBA from the Leeds School of Business in Colorado, where he currently resides with his family. So as we welcome Kai to the conversation today, please join in on the conversation, ask, conversation, or ask different questions, and let's talk about humanizing software. Kai, welcome today. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. Absolutely, certainly. And as we do with a number of different folks, we like to start off with folks having the opportunity to say, all right, the guy's got a cool name. Looks like he lives in a cool spot. Got to hear a little bit more about the company, but let's hear about the Kai story. Tell us a little bit about Kai Grenholm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I will. Yeah, my name is interesting. I've, those of you here in the, in the States, uh, you can, I've been pronouncing it since uh, over my past 52 years. Well, I guess maybe I've only been speaking for the past 51. But it's a, uh, a Swedish name. My father is, he's from Helsinki originally, born and grew up in Helsinki. My mother's from Holland, and they, they both worked for their respective airlines. My father worked for, for Finnair. My mother worked for KLM. And they met, got married, and they got transferred to New York, which is where I grew up. Though, oddly, my being immigrants, they didn't know anyone in the States. So when my brother and I were born in the late 60s, early 70s, 
my mother went to be with her sister and uh, I ended up being born in Iceland where her sister had married an Icelander. The origin story of, of my bouncing around. So we spent a lot of time flying back and forth across the Atlantic. I think my brother, he flew across the Atlantic, I think 22 times before he was two years old. Grew up in the airline family, which I think had a little bit to do with kind of the nomadic lifestyle of kind of like being comfortable doing new things because we were we were always moving. In like early 80s, we actually were supposed to move to Denmark. And then my mother decided when they went and visited Copenhagen that Denmark was too much like Holland. And <laughs> she was like, hell no. Oh, can I curse on this podcast? You would not believe what happens and it's all good. Roll with it, Kai. <laughs> But hell no, we're not going there. That's too much like Holland. Become Let's become Americans. That's where it was decided that we'd stay in New York, which is where I grew up. That's kind of like my bouncing around story. We moved around between New York and, and Virginia back and forth a few times. Uh, worked My father working at different airports. But kind of like my software story started in the early 80s when my parents decided to buy us a Commodore VIC-20 for, for Christmas one year. And we took to it. Of course, there were some good games that you could play, like Winter Games and and Zork and Adventure, and some of the some of the best games that you, that you could really enjoy on that and play them on the tape drive. But writing some of those, writing some programs in, in Basic was really exciting for me. I, I, I super, I super really, really enjoyed it. I think one of the first programs I wrote was I was really into Dungeons and Dragons, like a lot of kids were back back there in '84. And we were always had big groups of kids coming over to the house to play. And a lot of them didn't have characters. So I was like, you know what? Maybe I could take this language that I've been writing and use some of these random number generators and, and build a character creator that I could just put in a few parameters for Dungeons and Dragons into my Commodore VIC-20. And uh, it would then randomly generate the attributes and the name and, and some of the other things in there, build a little database you could talk to and pull those things from. And, and uh, the, I think that was one of the first software programs I wrote. Really enjoyed that, kind of got, got into writing some more. I, I remember I wrote like back in those days, like there wasn't like software for, for learning wasn't really out there. But I remember writing my sister, who's seven years younger than I am. She uh, was learning math. And I was like, well, I could just write like a, a math program creator for her just to ask her math questions, just kind of repeat like to help with the rote memorization of like the two plus two and four plus four. So I remember writing that program and eventually the VIC-20 turned into a Commodore 64, which is actually still on my desk today at, at my office with, with all the games plugged in. It's like, I, I still have it. Oddly, one of my Finnish cousins, there's a whole group of people. I don't know if anyone, any of you guys out there follow this, but there's a whole group of people that still write and play programs on the Commodore 64. And uh, I have a Finnish cousin who that's all he does with his spare time. Is he's like really into the 60, 64 games, coming up with just, just crazy ideas all the time. Um, a shout out to Jonas if he, if he watches this. He's a good, good creator of, of software programs. So Kai, I'm going to jump in here because you're giving me such absolute gold that I've got to jump in for questions. I mean, just briefly, because I'm going to continue on with the story, but this is just absolutely. So to understand your origin story is to understand the funkiest geographical birth triangle from Sweden to New York to Iceland. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Well, I was born, my parents were living in New York when I was born. But, but from Sweden... From my father from Finland, my oh. my mother from Holland. Okay. And they they went to JFK to open up airport for Finnair. Finnair was just starting to fly to JFK. They were having like two or three flights a month, a week. And my mother, to be with family when I was born, she went to Iceland because her sister, who, who was also Dutch, had married a guy from Iceland. 
Okay, I've gotten uh, I've gotten a little bit of the geography messed up there, and yet your younger brother flew across the pond, the Atlantic pond, so to speak, twenty two times before he was two. So please tell me, please tell me that he was part of a frequent flyer program. Oh, you missed it. These are the glory days of airline travel <laughs> in the sixties, seventies, and eighties is that if you were an employee of an airline, like the flights were almost never full. So you could just walk into the airport and jump on a flight for free. Oh, the glory days. Okay, so. Airlines have gotten more efficient recently. And now being an employee of an airline means you're probably still going to buy your tickets. I'm thinking that if you're on an airline and you've flown 22 times internationally before the age of two, that has to get you elite status in these days for life. I've got to think that's the case. So that's a great story. The other piece is if I'm hearing you correctly, you essentially were... D&D or Dungeon and Dragons, D&D online before D&D was online with your program writing. I guess you could say that. We weren't quite connected to anyone at that point. That's awesome. No, that's just, I, I know that we have had, and you have dated both you and me, and that's a good thing. So we've got a good portion of our audience right now that's going, yeah, I get it. I feel you. We also have another portion of our audience that's going, how old are these two guys? I mean, literally, did they start in the 1800s or the 1900s? So I, I get it, but they, I had the exact same Commodore 64. Shout out to my good buddy, Kerry uh, Bruce, um, who's seen several of these in the past where he grew up on it. Uh, he and I both grew up on it and programming and playing around with stuff. And it, that might have been, it certainly was what gave me my love for technology. It also gives me my current affinity for the fact that even though we're a custom software development company, Tailwind, I know that not only my three business partners, but just about every one of the other folks in the company doesn't want me getting anywhere near coding at all. And that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So continuing on your story. So you were doing the nomadic thing, went to New York, bounced back and forth from New York to Virginia, still parents involved on the airline side. Started off on the software side of trying to figure out creative stuff, first to hang out with friends, then to do stuff that uh, was either family uh, and other oriented. Talk to us a little bit about the school years and uh, coming out of college and you know, obviously down here in Austin and then uh, moving up to Colorado. What kind of allowed you to not only enjoy the software bug early, but kind of help form, form some of your early on uh, work years? Yeah. Yeah. So as you said, I went to uh, University of Texas and got a degree in physics, though, though I had originally had started in electrical engineering. And uh, in the course of the, both of those degrees, I probably took around seven or eight computer programming courses or used computer programming during during those courses. Kind of my freshman year, I took the requisite Pascal class that was part of the, the uh, EE degree. And, and we got to go to the computer lab there on campus and spent a lot of time writing code and, and a lot of time with, with the paperclip, if you guys if you remember remember that, because every time the Apple IIe locked up, you floppy disk out, which required a paperclip to, to push into the, the eject button. The manual reset was not was not an actual button. It was a, it was a paperclip. I enjoyed that. I kind of, as a lot of people who get the degrees and get in the software, you get some form of engineering degree or other degree, and, and but you remember that your software programming courses were the ones that you really liked. My assembly program, the, the, the C programs, the C++ programming courses that I took were the ones I really enjoyed. And then when I left getting my physics degree, I wasn't quite sure what to do next, but I was really sure I enjoyed mountain biking. And so uh, there I am, 24 years old with a degree in physics. And I said, you know, 
I could go get a job in engineering and go work on that, but I'm not quite sure what I want to do yet. And I think maybe I could just talk my parents into saying, you know, I'm going to move to Colorado and look for something good to do. And so what I did when the back of my mind, I was like, you know, I'm just going to go to Colorado and ride my mountain bike for a couple of years and go work in a, in a bicycle shop. And so that's what I did. And there I kind of can't, what I realized was I had a, another skill set besides computer programming that maybe even was better than my computer programming. And that was my people skills and, and, and selling things. Like I really enjoyed helping people figure out what they wanted to do. And I, I sold a lot of bicycles. It was, it was a ton of fun and just help people get into the sport and really enjoy it. And uh, I spent a couple of years doing that and, until I realized, hey, this might be time for me to get on with my life, but, but this is really good. And, and then one day my brother called me. He was kind of in the same boat. He, he, had, he graduated with a degree in psychology and decided that he wanted, became a lifeguard. He was out in Hawaii and was bouncing around between the other lifeguard jobs. So we're kind of my parents were like, look at these two loser kids that we've, we've raised. We sent them both to college. We came to America, got the American dream. And here I got one kid working at the bike shop, another kid who's a lifeguard in Hawaii. It's like, are they going to do anything with their lives? And then my brother calls me up one day. He's like, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do, but I think I want to do one big adventure before I get started with my life. Let's ride our bikes across the United States. And so we ended up uh, working at the bike shop. I kind of organized the bikes. He organized the start of the trip. We went to Bainbridge Island in New Jersey. Hopped on our two touring bikes and took three months to ride from New Jersey to San Francisco and really just got to experience like the United States, like each city, each person. And you get to kind of feel like what the personality differences are as you get across the country. Like in the Northeast, people are the people are a little bit more aggressive. They're a little bit more like in your face with to begin with. And in the South, they're like, hey, come into my home. Like, here, Juan, you come come have a meal with me. Like come, come hang out. That's like that first two minutes is different as you, when you interact with people. But what you find is like after the first two minutes, the people's personality becomes what they are and everyone's kind of the same. It's an, it's an interesting dynamic. So three months with you were in your mid twenties, I assume both of you. Yeah, we're in our mid twenties. And just the, I mean, the logistics of planning this, and this is going to do the simple math and say that it was 25 or 27, 30 years ago that was going on. You didn't have anywhere near the assistance of these powerful little mini computers, otherwise known as um, iPhones or Google phones that are super powered from what we were talking about with the Commodore 64. Let's let's talk about the planning and logistics associated with that. I mean, you took care of the bikes. He took care of kind of the other side of the equation. I mean, how did you guys leverage technology to make that trip happen? Yeah. So back in those days, there wasn't really much in the way of technology. I mean, yeah, yeah, this is, this was like 1995. And so there was no, there was no mobile phones, which actually is a good thing when you're riding your bike, because if you're on a bike on the road, it's better that the drivers don't have mobile phones. Uh, I don't know if I'd do that same thing again in the current environment, but then we, we basically had a paper map and we had a, a phone that we could occasionally call people and say, can you ship us some food and to the next mail, mailbox station up ahead? So it was, it was pretty limited. I mean, we used postcards to communicate with people. Back in those days, there was not that much technology. So coding on Commodore, excuse me, the VIC-20s and then the 64, and then sending postcards and getting mail drops of food on a cross-country bike trip. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like the opposite of technology. 
if you actually pulled up a glass of tequila right now, we're going to have a conversation. And if there's tequila in that coffee cup, Kai, we're going to have the conversation about the most interesting man in the world here. This is kind of, this is great stuff relative to just the background. I had no idea about the bike trip. That's, I mean, that took a lot of gumption to make happen. Yeah. Yeah. That was, it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a good adventure and it kind of like for both of us, it got it, got bog out of us, so to speak, like in terms of like, Hey, let's, let's, let's get this thing going. When you arrived in San Francisco, did you have folks meeting you there? What was the end of the trip? Like, what was that sense of accomplishment? That sense of, wow, what did we just do over the last 90 days? Yeah. I mean, it felt great. Like just being done is it was nice as well, but just saying dipping the, the front tire in, into the Pacific ocean at the end of that, you're like, you have that feeling of accomplishment. You're like, you know, I can do anything I want. And we had this little Jägermeister bottle that we had with us from the very beginning of the ride. And we're like, at the end of the ride, we're going to drink this tiny little thing of Jägermeister. And, uh, and there has to be a christening. I mean, there absolutely has to be some sort of uh, celebratory uh, beverage that's involved. Yeah, that was the finish of the ride. Yeah. At the end of that, my brother, he went to flight school and became a pilot. He fl- now flies for Southwest. And I went to get my MBA at University of Colorado. Excellent. So the MBA, you guys both brought those paths. And I assume at this point, your parents are going... Yeah, oh. they're like they're like at least at least they're finally going to do something with their lives. I'm I'm pretty impressed with so far what's happened. But so you get started. You're now let's fast forward a little bit. You've been with Woodbridge Software. You've been you're now been running the show there for some time. Widely respected from everybody that I've talked to in the industry that has had the chance to work with you, always has good things to say about Woodbridge. Let's talk a little bit about this stage of your life in terms of what you're doing and. We're going to dovetail this into kind of this journey about software impacting folks, but I'm curious to understand how your journey and Woodridge kind of are, are tying together here. Yeah. So, so at Woodridge, a custom software development company, just about a hundred folks, kind of all, almost all here in North America. We have one, one person in Canada and three people in, in Europe. And what we do is we kind of help make the world a little bit better by, by making software better. All of us kind of have to deal with software in one way or another throughout the day whether it's like booking an airline ticket or, or booking a haircut to banking, doing banking services or doing more complex things or playing games on your phone. If that software is awful and you have to use it as a part of your job, and, and this is something like, if I go back even to my bike shop days, I was the one that was like customizing our point of sale system and rewriting rewriting the software there to make it work better. Because say, hey, oh, closing out the drawers is taking us 20 minutes. It's like, well, maybe I can write some custom code for this, I can get it down to three because the software they wrote, it was not for people. It was, it was written because that's just the way the software was written. And so I really believe that if you write good code and write better code, that if software kind of disappears around the people that you end up with a, with a better situation. And, and, and so that's what we do at Woodridge is we try to build good code for good people and do it in in an environment that, that lets the individuals thrive. Like, like when I did my venture back st- startup out of getting my MBA, while I was getting my MBA, we were invented network access control. If you remember back in those days, Wi-Fi was, if you read any article about Wi-Fi, it was saying Wi-Fi is the most scary thing in the world because there is no security. And people would write articles that they would drive down the street and connect to everyone's network. And then of course, even the personal computers didn't really have firewalls on them. So they were like, oh, I can connect to any network and I can get onto people's computers that are on that network. This is the worst security issue we've ever seen. And they invented WEP for security, which was which was also took about um, 15 minutes to, to break. 
originally and then they got down to a few seconds and so we were like well what what if we put a firewall at the end of the end edge of the the network we could then determine who's going to come into the network and who's not going to come in and we could do these web portals that you could that you could log into that you'd have to get through the captive portal solution a few of us invented that but that company i could talk more about the, the, that history but running that venture back company you're kind of go 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 fast 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 and you end up making decisions and hires that are maybe not the best because you're just trying to get everything going. And one of the nice things about Woodridge and the, the company there is that not only is it fun to build good software, but when I joined the company and it was about eight people, all the people there were really friendly and kind of really humble. And the company also had no debt and no investors, which was I was more used to in all the other companies I, I was part of. There was always investors. There's always people to answer to. And I was like, maybe I should not screw this up. And let's see if I can build this thing without taking on any debt, taking on any investors. And let's see if I can just keep hand, hiring people that are like these people that are, that are smart and humble. And then maybe we, as a group, we can kind of help build better software for people. I like the build better software for people specifically, because that's something that I know we've had the opportunity to talk about. Let's dovetail a little bit into humanizing software. Both Tailwind and Woodridge are very, very focused on the financial services sector, which is ripe for, well, I guess the current nomenclature is all about digital transformation and making sure that especially during COVID where a lot of business models changed and call centers and going into banks or credit unions or your financial institution, not only didn't, weren't allowed, but didn't happen. And, and that's really put things dramatically uh, different. I'd be curious to see, especially since you've been kind of a, a tech guy since your early years, what are a couple of the trends that you've seen? And let's just call it over the last 10 years or so that... Back in 2013, we were here and we were able to do X and Y. Now it's 2023. Look at what we've been able to do because of whatever. What are some of those whatevers that you think have been pretty impactful as it relates to humanizing software, Kai? Well, if you think about like when you were taking, I don't know if you took software classes at, at University of Texas, you were graded on whether or not your code was as performant as possible. You would get an A if you did the right sorting uh, algorithm and you would get a, a C if you did the wrong one. It was all about making computing power, the limited computing power that you had work as well as, as possible for the, the task at hand. So it was almost all the programs we wrote were analyzing sets of data or, or doing like Monte Carlo simulations, is just trying to figure out how to get the most power out of the computer. And that's who was teaching us the software. So in, in the early 90s, when I was in getting my degree, the professors that taught the software were grew up in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and they had even less computing power. So the classes were all based upon that. Like when we took an assembly class, it was like, here, this is, this is amazing language because you can really get into the registries and, and make things as, as performant as possible. And even when I did my venture back startup with network access control, there was a, an afterthought to the human interaction with the software. It was more, even though we were the, the first, like when you got onto a network with your Wi-Fi device, say we were at the Fort Lauderdale airport or you were at the Boeing organization taking your training courses where our software was installed. Like we focused on building like a very performant firewall and we didn't really focus on what the human interface was. So if you look back to like 2013, like that's probably about when 
like actually making the interface and the, the human interaction with the software began to happen. The concept that you could be an, an artist at heart and be really good at drawing and good at coordinating colors. And then you could turn that into a career and not only just a good career, but a very high paying career as, as a UX UI designer. Like if you think about all the kids that were artists in the, in the nineties and eighties, whose parents said, go get a real job. Like you'll never make any money. And how many of those could be doing amazingly good work now and probably are in, in writing the designs and designing the, the software. I think that's probably the biggest thing that I think is different about computing today. There's a, there's a whole host of things, but it's user focused first. I mean, there's a reason why Microsoft was the biggest software company in the nineties. And it had nothing to do with the fact that they were building good user interfaces. It ran on the computers they had and they had, the interface existed, but it wasn't good. Whereas now people are more used to like, Hey, give me something that is intuitive and has like the right amount of friction. So I know where the, where to click and that that button actually is a clickable button. It allows me to go through it. And I think that's an, an amazing thing and a, and a big change in the way we think about software today. That's an excellent example, Kai, on a number of different fronts. I know that Microsoft was taken to task for, oh, wait, hold on, time out. I need to shut down my computer. And why am I going to the start button to yeah. be able to do that? That doesn't make sense to me. And then you have, and it's the age old example, and we've talked about it quite a bit. Um, you have, again, this incredibly powerful tool, this iPhone um, uh, from Apple that was very, very game changing in a number of different means, not only with the powerful computing aspect in your hand that with the hardware, but the different software that was incorporated and the fact that you were then able to leverage various different applications that anybody could build. Apple gets to take a cut of all of that, but any, or, and now Google and, and, and whatnot. And I distinctly remember having a conversation when I was doing some work up in Seattle with Microsoft and I got duly chastised and justifiably so for walking into a Microsoft meeting with their mobile group with an iPhone. And I put it down on the table that, of course, did not go over well and almost ended the meeting. It was kind of interesting. I did it a little bit on purpose to not just kind of spark ideas. But he's like, why, why are you actually literally in my office with this phone? And it spoke to a couple of different things. Number one, uh, and then he went on to talk about how bad Apple was and the, it's just not going to ever make it. They don't understand software and a whole bunch of other stuff, which is laughable now, uh, fast, fast uh, forward here. And realizing that the way that people think that things have always been done by no means means that it is the only or right way to do them going forward. And Steve Jobs obviously got that along with a lot of other folks, but this particular device in particular, uh, this, this particular iPhone specifically gives the opportunity for people to, with a very seamless, intuitive interface, interface access information, data, FaceTime, check on book. You talked about everything from booking a haircut to being able to buy movie tickets to being able to order something during COVID and have it delivered during your doorstep. And that was transformative change in a lot of different ways where restaurants, in order to survive, if they had an okay interface, that wasn't going to make it. It just wasn't because their customers weren't going to go and have to go through clunkiness or wonkiness to be able to order something for pickup or for delivery just from a basic food necessity side. 
So I'm curious to see, and, and obviously, and I loved your analogy with professors were teaching to what they knew from the past, but technology always presents a challenge there because it's ever accelerating. How do you see with the pace of where things are going? And I'm gonna of course bring up ChatGPT as a great example of that. And I say ChatGPT with OpenAI from Microsoft, Google's getting in the game, Baidu's getting into the game, Snapchat just launched something with my AI where they flat out said, hey, we're going to go ahead and do this because everybody's doing this. And by the way, this is probably not going to make sense. And it's going to say some stupid stuff. We're sorry. Just go ahead and deal with it. So they're setting the expectations of we have no idea what's going to happen, but we just feel like we need to be in the game. I'm curious to get your talk uh, or your take on kind of all of that bucket that I just brought up uh, in, in there, Kai. You sure brought your, your Microsoft Nokia phone into that, into that meeting. <laughs> I might or might not have one back in the uh, tech graveyard. The Symbian operating, operating system. Yeah, Symbian. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, we have in our tech, I have the very first Bluetooth phone that Ericsson made. It's, and it even says prototype on it. It was, it was, that was, it came out in like 2001 or so, 2002. Yeah. From a question when you're saying, what do I think about all of those, these new technologies that are coming out? How is it going to change things going forward? Yeah, the, the rapid, the pace of accelerated change with technology. How are you guys thinking about that at Woodridge? And, and how are you, at Kai, thinking about it as well? Yeah, well, I think in, in some ways, like we're in the financial services industry, which isn't always the fastest moving one. But when you look at what's happening outside of, of that, that's where the expectations are set for, for what the public wants to do. Like being having to go like into a branch to open a, a bank account, for example, is is not something that a millennial or Gen Z or Gen Alpha would really want to do. They, they want to do things online. And the pace of change of making things easy, like those of us who, who have like a car with Android app, auto or, or car play if you get in a car that doesn't have it what, what is this it's like I, I can't even like pick my music by touching the screen on the on in front of me whereas whereas back in the, in the 80s when we could when they invented the cassette tape that you could actually hit fast forward and it would listen to when the gap in the noise was to get to the next song and that was amazing technology, but it, you just quickly get used to what's there and you begin to expect it everywhere. And I think that's what's really exciting about even some of the new uh, AI stuff like chat GPT. It's like, like when you're in, in your home and you say, Alexa, play some music for me. I mean, four years ago, if you walked in someone's house and they said, hey, hey, can you play some Led Zeppelin and Led Zeppelin starts playing and you hear the immigrant song song rocking in the background, you'd be that would like shocked you. Or now it's like for my kids who are 11 and 12 years old, like. That's that's what they expect, and I think that that's the same thing that's happening with Chat Chat GPT. I mean, amazing that people are going to think that they can actually have like almost sentient conversations with their computer, and that's something that they can expect. Do you hear the story about the New York Times reporter whose Chat GPT told him that maybe he, he and his wife weren't really getting along that well, and they maybe shouldn't be together anymore? Are you serious? Now I, I've seen so many different stories. That's a new one to me. That legitimately happened. Uh, well, from my hearsay, hearsay, that's legitimately happening. Yeah, which is which is a valid question to ask in 2023 as to trust but verify relative mm -hmm. to the source. Because it's quite amazing what you can read. And boy, did we experience quite a bit of that over the last several years, which has led. And it's actually a thread that I want to pull on a little bit more. Technology, not as a harmonizer, but as a potential source of discord. We have so many different 
social, I don't just blanket it together, social media channels that are out there. And it seems that whenever we get close, especially to an election cycle, the far, far, far left and the far, far, far right like to not only stake their claims, but they've got many, many ways to attract attention, gather headlines, generate eyeballs, create controversy. And I'm going to throw in there incite, mistrust, anger, and a whole bunch of other different things. It's happened. It continues to happen where somebody gets triggered for something that may have been said or not said. I'm curious as to how your viewpoint on the technology side of creating that, and is there a solution to help foment collaboration versus antagonism? Personally, I think that there is a small group on either end of the spectrum. And there is even a smaller, smaller group of people who get triggered and do really crazy things. And the technology is is an enabler of that. But they're, they're kind of always been crazy people. From a media perspective, I won't go go too much in that. But I mean, the media, particularly like the main mainstream media, I mean, their their numbers are declining rapidly in terms of people watching and listening and reading, reading their articles. So they're focused on those little radical extremes on either end. If you want to get people clicking your stuff, spend all your time focusing on that. I think, I think the general population, particularly here in, in the United States, is more in the middle, on, the, on either end of, of the middle spectrum, and, and is using technology and social media in a relatively healthy way, um, for the most part. I mean, some people are, are overly addicted, and a lot of people probably use it a, maybe a little bit more than they want to. But I think for the majority of people, it's it, it doesn't really sow, sow that much discord. I, I think it does create some of the friends that you may or may not have, the people that are more dogmatic and not open to other ideas. They're going to miss out if they just kind of isolate themselves with the people that are thinking their own thing. I mean, if, you're, if your mind isn't open to change, I mean, are you really still sure that you have one? And so it's. I personally enjoy kind of reading both the left and right opinions. And I go into it with open mind because I found throughout my years, what I thought was right three, four years down the road actually was wrong. And the other side was actually was actually correct. As with many things, Kai, we are much alike with that. Um, I was uh, um, out with some friends and hanging out, had my phone as everybody does just over on the table. In this case, I didn't have it turned over. I had it and it was a Saturday morning and I simultaneously, and I'll just come right out and say it. Um, I, I, I simultaneously or within a minute or so got alerts from CNN, and from Fox. And my buddy looked, he just said, it wasn't stalking or anything, just kind of looked and he goes, you might be the only person that I know that actually has those on your phone. And it actually sparked a conversation. And I said, absolutely. Because the reason I do that is I understand what's happening here. And I understand a little bit about what's happening here. And I try and understand that Venn diagram of what is the actual main intent. And when I want to try and go to something factually, I go to a certain set of sources that I believe are trying to be what I consider not mainstream attract eyeballs, but let's actually report on news without opinion, but just stick with the facts type of items. And there's several sources internationally and domestically that I utilize that I think are attempting to at least try and instead of cater to their particular audience, just report the news, which isn't 
I thought at some point that's what a news, I guess it's become more entertainment or media, but that's a separate conversation across the board. But it's interesting because I try and I, I like to, I don't want to hear about what somebody thinks happened. I'd actually like to hear about what actually happened with the facts. I'm barely smart enough to barely interpret it on my own. Give me that opportunity at least to present me with the facts as they are known to be able to do so. From a software perspective, it, it's a good enabler, but it, it just allows the crazies to have to have, the, have their spot. I mean, the flat earthers, there's always going to be boats sailing around the world, but we need a spot for the flat earthers to hang out and, and talk. <laughs> the flat earthers, I love it. Thank you for introducing a new term. In 48 episodes, we have not covered off the flat earthers yet. We might need to go and uh, dive a little deeper on that. But something that we do that I wanted to touch on is, of course, the, the live cast is humanizing software. And that's we've had this great opportunity to chat with now 48 different folks about their viewpoint on that. But the important aspects of that is our subtitle, this concept of three simple words, people-driven technology, people-driven tech. Mm -hmm. That means many things to many people I have come to find out over the course of the last couple of years. I wanted to ask you, Kai, when I say those three words, people-driven tech, tell me what comes to mind. Yeah, well, when I think about software and it making people's lives better, like how can I make people's lives better and people-driven technology, it's like the technology is doing what that space should be. Like, for example, we do a lot of apps and banking. I don't think a banking app should be a social media app like where people want to hang out and have chats and discussions and things like that. They're banking. You're trying to typically do some form of transaction, open an account, transfer money and a people driven tech in that space is it should be easy to use. It should be simple. It should be on brand should like drive the consumer to do what they need to do, but they, they probably don't want to be hanging out at their party talking with their friends and doing some banking transactions. Like you might see a Wells Fargo commercial where they say, hey, look at this. Look how, look how happy everyone is. They're at the beach and they're banking as, as opposed to having a Corona and talking to their friends. So in that sense, people-driven tech should be the right amount of, of tech and the right amount of kind of entertainment and friction for what you're trying to do. Someone that like I've, I've had a lot of jobs over my years. Like I remember one of my college jobs was uh, being a ramp rat, which is the guy, the guy out on the, on the airline airport ramp, moving the bags. Yeah. And it was always a little bit of a challenge back in the days, like to even know which, like w which one, which gate were you on and where were you going? Were you going to be in the belly when the plane landed or were you going to be in the belly when the plane took off? It was, this was in Orlando and you definitely wanted to be in the belly when the plane landed because it was nice and cool. By the time that thing took off, it was 110 degrees down there. There was no software there to kind of help make it easy to figure out what your day-to-day -day job was. If you, if you were like a, a bank teller and you need to go through five different screens just to try to figure out like what this client was and, and the client had just got a really bad interaction with the last bank teller he talked with and he comes in yelling, yelling at you and angry and you have no idea because the technology you're using doesn't tell you what just happened with this user. That's not people-driven tech. It's not doing what it needs to do for that occasion. So technology should, in, in a lot of ways, disappear to the user for what it's there for, unless it's kind of an, an, an entertainment type, type thing. So that, that's interesting on a couple of different fronts, Kai. What you're saying there is some of the best technology is technology that people don't even exist because it's just quietly doing its job. Right. Definitely. I mean, you should, it should be as simple as possible. Like 
when you go to a ski resort, it used to be that you had to go get your ticket and you had to tape tape it on, and then then they'd have to scan it, and then they may look they on the scanner, look at their face and, and things like that, and like that wasn't the best experience. And now I take my ski pass and I put it in my sleeve of my jacket, and I walk up, and the gate's got these swing swing things, and I just walk through, and it, 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 that that's people driven tech, that's tech getting making a better a better experience for me. And that's an excellent example of allowing you to get in more runs to have more pain at the end of the day, especially as you get older and be able to experience more of the after skiing appropriate beverages to relive the glory days, right? No, I'm sorry. That's my way of skiing. I apologize. <laughs> yeah. My ski operate ski if you get if you get a few more runs in. Yes, absolutely. My ski style of 2023 is certainly different back in 1993. I will just leave it at that. So um, as we get close to wrapping up today, Kai, you've got, you've put together a pretty incredible team. Is there anything specific to the talent of Woodridge on the software side that you want to make sure that the folks that are listening in are particularly aware of as it pertains to you or your team or your approach to building stuff? Yeah, I think from a, from a team perspective, what is really nice about the software developers that we have, we have we we have very seasoned developers, and then we have relationships with different universities. We have a really nice relationship with the Colorado School of Mines, which is kind of like the MIT of the Rockies. And we get to hire developers both from that we hire from university and and the experienced ones. And we focus on hiring ones since we are consultants. We're not. We're not Google or, or someone else out there. We, we need to go into people's environment and help them build things for their environment. And the best software developer for doing that is, is someone who's really smart, a good coder, but there's plenty of those out there. What is more rare in the world of software developer is someone that is is kind of logically smart. You'll We'll see people that graduate with like a, a 4.0 GPA from a computer science program and you ask them a logic question about maybe sorting t-shirts for 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 twins and how many t-shirts you need to pull out of the pull out of a closet to get all the same color uh, like a simple logic question like that and they'll just stumble they're really good at writing code but they aren't good at just maybe solving the, the actual problem seeing a problem and solving it and so what we focus on is is that that rare trifecta of good software developers that are smart that are good logically smart and are also humble like they're, they're not arrogant so that that means they can listen they have empathy and if you have a team full of people that do that you can build some amazing things that's kind of what, what our secret sauce is well what a fantastic spot to end on specifically about having a multifaceted role where it's not just about hey can you write good lines of code and going back to your days when you went to college where it was all about making sure that the code that you worked was working based off parameters, which were the way that the professors who had learned stuff 20, 10, 20 years ago thought that it should be at this time. Mm -hmm. No chance of that happening in this day and age. And the fact that you guys are looking to attract the right humans to develop software specifically to make life's people make people's lives better, I think is a very, very key thing. And I think that's the whole purpose behind why we're doing this live cast. So thank you for sharing that, Kai. And and, and just uh, thank you for being on the, the live cast today. Yeah, it's been really fun talking with you. Absolutely. So as we wrap up today, we want to thank everybody for listening in now or in the future. We want to again Join us in the conversation online, whether it's on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, our YouTube channel, where we have our previous episodes. 
This one will be posted quite soon. And also engage with us on our website at tailwindsw.com and continue this conversation about humanizing software. But as we close out today, Kai, again, thank you for joining. And we want to wish everybody a very, very good morning, a good afternoon, and good evening. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Humanizing Software with Andrew Tall. Make sure you subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.